This is the California Liberty Project Podcast. Welcome to the California Liberty Project. Thank you for being here this Saturday, June 25th, 2022. It's a very important day. Yesterday was a very important day for our country. Remember to be here every Saturday for the ideas, the philosophy, the strategies, and tactics that are going to help Californians make themselves free again. This is your Weekend Liberty Podcast, so thank you for being here. So I've got another great guest today, Sean Fredrickson. I'm really excited to talk to him, of course, but before we get to that discussion with Sean, I wanted to briefly discuss the big announcement yesterday, which was Friday, coming out of the Supreme Court. And of course, that was that Roe v. Wade was indeed overturned in that Dobbs v. Jackson decision that we'd all heard about. And, you know, there was that leak in early May, of course. Most people had expected this, um, and we'd been, we'd been hearing about it for a while. So the buildup was coming, and finally it came, and yesterday was a big day. So by now... You've heard a lot of really great incisive takes on this huge decision. You know, you've been kind of told how a lot of people think, how everyone comes down on this. I'm sure you've heard some really bad or some really lame takes too. So what I want to do here in the next few minutes, um, right at the start of this episode, is to not just regurgitate what you've already heard since yesterday. And depending on when you're listening to this, you might have already heard this for several days. So I don't want to just go through and rehash all of that. Again, some of it's good, some of it's kind of probably warmed over, trite, nonsense. What I want to do here is to emphasize a few points and maybe to synthesize some other great points that that people have made and that have been discussed out there. So um, I'll be talking about maybe just some some quick key takeaways from me and um, what I think this kind of means. But first, some high-level stuff. So this is certainly good news for saving unborn lives. It's good news for our country. It's good news for our constitutional system of federalism and the Tenth Amendment. Uh, The state of the abortion debate, so-called, is really strange. People like to pretend that they can craft some ethical or moral middle ground between completely banning abortion as homicide and completely legalizing abortion because it strictly pertains to the woman's body and the woman's bodily autonomy. So, a lot of the muddled nature of the discussion in this country does come from that squishy, centrist middle ground where people are just reaching and grasping for anything. You know, they're going to say, I feel like it should be this. I feel like abortion should be regulated, but not, you know, it shouldn't be available up until the third trimester. Or it needs to be regulated here or there. People are just going to make things up. You're going to hear a lot of emotionalism. You're going to hear a lot that actually sounds like the garbage Roe v. Wade decision, where we had a bunch of justices just grasping for straws, making things up, essentially legislating from the bench, um, coming up with emanations and penumbras, and slicing up and dicing um, the logic of of, uh, how does a pregnancy work? How about trimesters? How about this and that? We're going to come up with rules. It's all nonsense. To me, at least from my standpoint, there are two 
uh, rational positions, essentially, and only two on the abortion debate and discussion. It's completely banning abortion as a homicidal act, a brutal act that ends a baby's life, or it's going to be completely legalizing abortion because it's just the woman's body and the woman has complete bodily autonomy. Um, Lord knows I, I support liberty. However, the, the question really is, is there just one body, i.e. the woman's body, or are there two human beings, two bodies? To me, that's the big question. But those are really the, the, two, the two different positions that actually make sense in this debate. And of course, you know where I come down on this ethically, morally, and, and otherwise. Um, I believe that abortion takes a human life, and I believe that it is wrong. I believe that it is homicidal, brutal action, and I believe that it should not be permitted in a civil society. But this middle ground uh, where we've come to, to regulate abortion and, and this type of thing, it's just intellectually, it's lazy, it's embarrassing. Um, if people truly believe in a woman's right to choose and a woman's bodily autonomy, and if they believe that it's not a life, um, that the, the fetus, the growing baby in the uterus is not worthy of protection, then that's, that's one thing. And it's kind of scary where that get, that goes. What's the logical extent? But that's that's essentially where we're at on that. So the overturning of Roe should absolutely be celebrated. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Keep in mind that 63 million babies have been killed here in America since 1973. To me, this is a horrific genocide. Without the proliferation of abortion since 1973, our country's population right now would be approximately 390 million people instead of 330 million people right now. I, I mean, that's incredible to me. We're missing 60 million approximately Americans here that would, would otherwise be with us. They would be alive. Yes, abortion is a brutal caveman homicidal act not befitting a civil society. This is where I come down on it. Um, abortion was promulgated by a nasty eugenics movement and a bunch of materialist ghouls, uh, particularly, you know, um, dating back to the progressive era uh, 100 years ago. This tradition has been carried on by progressives and even thinly veiled racists ever since. And it's, it's really an ugly story, a uh, very ugly story. Approximately 40% of black pregnancies today end in abortion. Think about that. More than 20 million black African-American babies have been killed in utero since 1973. 20 million African-Americans. The abortion rate for black women in America is three times greater than that of white women. In some cities, well over half of all pregnancies end in abortion. So again, take a minute to digest those statistics. And where is Planned Parenthood? Where are most or many of their facilities located? In inner cities? Who is their target population? I mean, facts are facts. I just read the facts there. Those are grisly statistics to my mind. And I am absolutely against that. I'm radically opposed to what that stands for, to what that does to all human beings. When we look at it specifically at the African-American population, I think the facts speak for themselves. It's grisly, and I'm absolutely, totally opposed to that. Now, how about some of the key takeaways that I mentioned um, 
just a few minutes ago. Here's kind of some of my analysis before we get to the rest of the episode. So the national freakout over these Supreme Court cases every June should remind all of us that we've allowed SCOTUS, obviously Supreme Court of the U.S., the Supreme Court's gained way too much power, political power, essentially legislative or lawmaking power, power over our daily lives, and in some cases, emotions. Um, When did this all start? So if we look back at judicial review more than 200 years ago, judicial review is a process under which the court decides what laws or government actions are constitutional. The court began asserting this newfound authority in 1803 with the Marbury v. Madison case. And it had its roots, um, you know, intellectually uh, since well before Marbury v. Madison in 1803. So judicial review is not in the Constitution. Um, And many Americans, including Thomas Jefferson, have been against it throughout the years. The problem with judicial review is that the Supreme Court essentially makes itself the ultimate constitutional arbiter. Um, But this is not the case, as we know. The Supreme Court does not rule supreme over the other two branches of government, and it certainly does not rule supreme over the people who instituted the government in the first place. The people must remain the ultimate arbiter. We, the people, we've got to be the ultimate arbiter of what is constitutional. At the end of the day, we decide. We can read those words. We can read the plain text. If we are not the ultimate arbiter of what is considered constitutional or what is constitutional according to the text, then we're no longer a free people, right? So judicial review comes up a lot, and it's always in the background with many of these SCOTUS cases. And I'm not saying that it's the key issue that's in play here with the overturning of Roe and with the Dobbs case that we were just all talking about here this weekend. Um, But again, the key thing here is that the Supreme Court is not the ultimate judge or decider or arbiter of the Constitution. And what that means practically is that states should have been writing their own abortion laws, some of which would outlaw abortion and others would codify the right, so-called right to an abortion. They should have been doing this all along since 1973. Roe v. Wade was one court decision, okay, but whoever said that it governs the entire United States, that it is the law of the land across the board. That's just not the case. The states, at least some states, should have defied the Supreme Court. The states whose people, through their elected representatives in their state legislatures, those states had already decided, many of them. And the Supreme Court just waved their magic wand and said, your legislatures, your political will doesn't matter to us because we are nationalizing, we're homogenizing abortion policy. And that's not how any of this works. So why have all of the states played along and deferred to the Supreme Court for nearly 50 years while these 63 million children have been slaughtered and aborted? What laws have been overturned or rendered obsolete by anti-democratic SCOTUS decisions throughout the years? Um, And there have been a lot of them where the SCOTUS has waved its magic wand and overridden the, the will of voters across the the nation, at least in very many states, as we saw in Roe v. Wade. Well, any of those laws that were just overturned by the Supreme Court waving their magic wand, those laws should be revisited and revived in their particular states, absolutely. 
We've allowed SCOTUS to usurp way too much power. That's one of the key takeaways here. The Supreme Court should not rule our lives in individual jurisdictions all across this country. That's not how this works. Even Alexander Hamilton in Federalist 78, he agreed that, and to quote who he was quoting, there is no liberty if the power of judging be not separated from the legislative and executive powers. Okay. In Roe, the court absolutely acted as a legislative branch by creating these detailed, specific rules for abortions and timelines for pregnancies. What they did in 1973 was just essentially acting as a super legislature, and they just made up these different timelines, trimesters, and such. You know, something that really would be the purview of a legislature, or of Congress at least. It should really be state legislatures, but yeah, you get the, uh, get the point there. So we need to look at all other unconstitutional SCOTUS decisions that currently rule over us. And those decisions need to be challenged by state legislatures or even ignored or nullified. Just as Roe v. Wade should have been challenged or ignored by most state legislatures starting right back in 1973 to 1974. Quit waiting for permission. Quit standing around waiting. Nowhere in the Constitution does it state that, that Supreme Court rulings are the ultimate say in any matter or that the Supreme Court rules supreme over all of us. That's not the case. They're a co-equal branch of government, and that's horizontal federalism. Vertical federalism is very important, too. In other words, we have the federal government, but according to the Tenth Amendment that we've all heard so much about, the states and the people have tremendous powers. Basically, everything that's not mentioned in Article 1, Section 8, or other parts of the Constitution, all other political power is retained by state legislatures and the people that are in charge of those state legislatures. So another thing is many have noted this Dobbs decision doesn't outlaw abortion across the entire U.S. It merely returns the matter to the people in each and every one of the 50 states. Okay, here we are all aware of that. But keep in mind, many low-information voters do not know this. This is the dynamic in the U.S. currently you know, in which we find ourselves. So the point is, for many of us living in blue states, such as California, abortion will be defended rapidly, or even expanded, as Newsom is trying to do in California here. We must step up our peaceful fight against abortion, even in blue states, especially in, in blue states, as a matter of fact. You should be personally invested in this, as I am. Um, after all, it's our tax dollars that are going to be funding abortion tourism and travel to blue states such as California, where they're going to ramp up abortions. They want to basically confiscate our money and our tax dollars at a time when there is allegedly a nearly $100 billion budget surplus here in California. Remember that? They want to take our dollars and they want to use it to expand abortion. Just sticking their finger right in our eye. So fight abortion in California the same way we've fought against SB 871, AB 1993, and even currently Senate Bill 866 with citizen activism, calling legislators, letting them know what's up. We've got to remain active on this. And of course, woke companies are going to try to virtue signal by offering up to $4,000 in some case, cases 
for these travel costs so that employees can easily travel to blue states and abort their own babies. And so why is this? Why are companies so invested in, in making sure that um, women, their women employees, have access to abortion? You think about it, <laughs> it's, it's kind of, it's completely gross. It's horrifying. But it's basically because abortion and even abortion tourism is much less expensive than paying for maternity leave and then paying for a health plan and health care for a, a baby or young child for the next 18 or 20 or 26 years. It sounds absolutely horrible and cynical to say this, but these are not my policies. This is just the reality of things, um, everyone. And I, I don't think that probably comes as news to you. But this is where we find ourselves in so-called blue states here in America in 2022. So, what we're going to see now as well is that Democrats are going to love to make this abortion issue a huge deal. They're going to want to talk about it on cable news. It's going to be flashed all over news shows. Um, they're going to revel in protests and even riots. All of that, all of that distraction. And I'm not saying it's not important, but all of this is going to help the Democrats with their political goals. They want rioting in the streets. They want splashy headlines. They want citizens going to war with one another. Why? Because they have no other choice, at least on the national scene. Their policy failures are so gigantic and undeniable that they have to employ any distraction that they can. I mean, think about that. They've destroyed the economy with sky-high inflation, gas prices. We're, we're going through demand destruction right now because gas is so high. They've screwed up foreign policy. They're funding a war in Ukraine. Um, is stepping us right up to the brink of war with Russia. Crime in inner cities is skyrocketing. Homelessness is a disaster in many big cities and in, in so-called blue or Democrat-run jurisdictions. Uh, most Americans think Biden is just too old and senile. We're watching him stumble over words. Um, he's falling over on his bike. I mean, these aren't things to even laugh about anymore, but um, people are seeing an inept, very, very old man and they're wondering what is going on as this country, on every front, we appear to be failing. Um, so it's getting really scary. And Democrats basically have to push this abortion narrative. They have to make the upcoming midterm elections about abortion. You can see the look of relief. You can hear the relief in their voices as they talk about what the midterms are going to be about. They finally found something that the midterms can be about. It's not the Putin price hike anymore. That was a joke. Now... Now these midterms are going to be about abortion access and abortion rights. And really what they say is, oh, it's about health care, as if this has anything to do with medicine or caring for a woman. So that's kind of where we're at. With Governor Newsom here in California, oh yeah, I mean, he thinks this is a winning issue, right? And again, he has to run away from his failures. High taxes, people fleeing the state, we're losing so many residents because of these awful policies. Again, homelessness, crime skyrocketing. Um, the state, many of our cities are just filthy and failing. And this guy needs to change the, uh, the topic. And so he wants to run for president in 2024. He has to find a way that he can undercut or kind of do an end run around Kamala Harris um, because he actually is so delusional he thinks he can be president. So don't ever forget the filter through which all of this is discussed, at least in the media, if you even watch the media. And I'm, I'm not saying you should watch the media, but if you do, 
This is the filter through which we're looking at it. Newsom thinks he has a shot at being president, if you can believe that or not. And um, so that's what's going on with this. The Democrats are loving this change in the narrative. They're loving the change in the headlines, even though you would think that this is really, uh, really ugly stuff, what we're seeing. And even the rioting in the streets and downtown L.A. and all across the country. No, it's not bad for business. It's good for business, at least for the Democrats. So all of this division over Dobbs and abortion around the nation could end up being a good thing because it could hasten the arrival of our national separation. And I'm not calling for a civil war or anything of that nature. Um, But the two sides should not, we don't need to basically be going to war with one another. Um, We need to be moving away from one another. I mean, physically, move to separate states. We need self-sorting. You know, go to where you're gonna find a legislature and a governor and other people that maybe share more of your ideals. We don't need to be clawing each other's eyes out, so to speak. We don't need to be at war with one another. We don't want to. We want peace. So what we should do is actually practice federalism, and we should move to separate states. So hopefully this national sorting under federalism, federalist policies, hopefully this is going to really increase and accelerate. And I think that is a great peaceful solution where we can achieve more liberty and we can live under the laws that, frankly, we want to live under instead of being forced to live under this awful, homogenized, nationalized regime, such as Roe v. Wade court decisions, which govern every single um, maternity or abortion issue in the, in the country. No, we need to get out from under all of that. We need this, this peaceful, spontaneous self-sorting to continue. And people are going to leave places like California. California is losing population. Everyone's going to Idaho. Everyone's going to Texas, Arizona, or even Tennessee or Florida. Uh, I just talked to Clint Russell last week. And of course, he's down in Miami. Um, he loves the Carlsbad and San Diego area. But this is happening with people all around the state, sadly. People leaving our beautiful state and they're being forced to go elsewhere as, as pioneers. Pioneers for liberty, for individual autonomy, and to do what's best for their families. So that's, that's going to continue. It's 100% American. Um, it goes right hand in hand with tenth, the Tenth Amendment, states' rights, and federalism, essentially. Go and find your individual um, place, your location. Where do you want to be? Where do you feel like you belong? Where do the laws make sense to you? And that's how we really have a true diversity uh, here in, in the U.S. Not this forced diversity, not homogenization, Um, but a true diversity with individual choice, family choice, uh, personal autonomy. So there should be 50 different state laws on abortion, not just the one. There should be 50 different state laws on a number of different things. Because if it's not mentioned in the Constitution, if it's not an enumerated power, then whatever issue that is, it should be handled by the states. So remember, on this podcast, I'm advocating for local control, political decentralization. These are all the solutions that are going to help us achieve liberty. So in summary, let's remain peaceful, remain vigilant at your masses and your church services this weekend and next weekend. Remain prayerful, remain grateful, I'd encourage you. But do celebrate. Celebrate the overturning of Roe v. Wade. It is a huge victory and it's a huge symbolic victory for life. 
it's a huge L on honestly, a big loss for the other side to take. And that's okay. You know, sometimes they're going to have to take some losses when it comes to preserving the lives of innocent human beings. Uh, and that's that's the way it's got to be. But remember, we have a lot of work to do in blue states such as California. So um, with that, let's let's get to the Sean Fredrickson interview. Thank you for hearing out my thoughts on this landmark historic ruling, uh, Roe v. Wade being overturned. But on to the rest of the show. Welcome to the California Liberty Project podcast. So we're a brand new weekend Liberty podcast for anyone in California or points beyond. Um, I think we have a lot of important things to say here in California. We hope you're paying attention. Maybe we're a little bit of a cautionary tale, but make sure to listen to this on Apple Podcasts, on Google, Spotify, soon to be coming on YouTube and Rumble. And of course, we're at California Liberty Project on Instagram. We've been growing there. And even on Twitter, I got a few followers. I haven't been as active on Twitter, but jump onto Twitter with me. I'm going to try to grow that space a little bit. So join us. Um, Every Saturday, we want to be your weekend Liberty podcast. And a big part of what we do here is trying to highlight freedom fighters, liberty activists, other podcasters, other people out there fighting for liberty, spreading the ideas of liberty, freedom, of constitutionalism. In some cases, um, you know, we've talked to libertarians and conservatives. And that being said, I'm really excited to have with us a great guest here uh, for this week's episode. I want to welcome in Mr. Sean Fredrickson. And Sean, many of you or most of you are going to know because you've seen some of the cool stuff that he's been involved with. Um, And so I wanted to talk to him. I love his energy. I love his zeal for liberty and for our state. But he's he's involved with Freedom Revival. I think he might be one of the co-founders there. Um, He's got a great series on Instagram and social media, We the People, and probably done a bunch of other really cool stuff. So with that, let me welcome in Mr. Sean Fredrickson. And Sean, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and how'd you get involved in this in this fight here in California? And, you know, where'd you grow up in California? Where are you from? Yeah. Well, first, Greg, thank you so much for having me on. What a joy to collaborate with other patriots here in San Diego and California in general. We need more of us. There need to be more of us that are actively getting involved asking questions, trying to figure out what we can do to restore liberty because it seems as though we're slowly beginning to lose it because there isn't enough citizen activism uh, in this country, uh, in this state, or even in, in local counties. So for me, I got engaged in, well, it all really began for me in 2015 when I started asking questions like this, this something strange is happening with the Hillary and Trump election. Um, where my, my, my frame of view was I trusted what I saw on television for the most part. You know, we all know their ads. We all know there's a little bit of wiggle room between the truth and the lie. But it really came to my forefront when I saw the difference between Google searches and Bing searches. I don't remember, I don't know if you remember, but there was a time when people were, were trying to find stuff on Hillary Clinton on Google and they would like, it would auto-populate with Hillary Clinton is a great president or Hillary Clinton. And it would all be positive if you jump to another search engine, then it would shift and it would auto-populate with the most common searches. Remember that? It was, it was, it was so bizarre. And for me, it opened my mind to, wait a second, there's something happening. And so that's when the snowball started to really, um, I would say, manifest where I began to 
ask more questions, be more vocal in my community and started to kind of investigate to say, if it's not what I think it is, then what is it? And that really has led to where I am today. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of places to go with that. What we've seen in the past uh, six years, seven years, and especially in the past two years has certainly radicalized me, I think, in a really good way, uh, radicalized me for liberty, as I say it. And I think a lot of folks also are kind of getting, you know, red-pilled or waking up or are seeing that the things that we used to accept as a given, now it's a whole new ground. It, the groundwork is has been laid bare. Everything is right in front of us. And it's kind of like, wow. I'm like rubbing my eyes, like Rip Van Winkle, kind of waking up uh, to the show, to the the entire matrix that we've been put into. Um, so I, I'm right there with you. So for the Freedom Revival, tell us a little bit about that. Um, I think you guys had a big event down in, in San Diego in January. What's that all about? How can people get involved? And um, are there going to be more uh, great events for liberty, liberty-minded folks and freedom fighters? Yeah, thanks for asking, Greg. So Freedom Revival was birthed out of necessity, where a number of us leaders in San Diego County were asking, what do we do? Here we are in a time when you're not really supposed to be gathering still because social distancing and the masks are still on people and, and fear seems to be heightened. And this is uh, November 2020, November 2021. And we all know we've been, we're being lied to. And, but how do you get to the bottom of the lie? And what do you do once you get to the bottom? And so we began to really say like, what if we just got a bunch of people together and started speaking truth? And you know, what if we got like a like a large gathering, like 20 or 30,000 people together was the initial dream. And this happened, this idea happened just about Thanksgiving time in 2021. And, and so we said, you know what, how about we start the new year off different? Like we know they're going to do something uh, in 2022 to affect the elections. Well, how about we start it on a positive note? How about we gather a bunch of freedom loving, um, pro, uh, pro, um, God, uh, individual responsibility, Christians together and we make a mark. We, we put a stamp on the on 2022 before any of the chaos uh, proliferates. And we do it right in January on the lawn of the County Board of Supervisors in San Diego County. So we wanted to bring in like Riverside County, San Bernardino, Orange, L.A. Um, and 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 ensure that we could almost say that we know what you're doing and we're not going to comply. We're not gonna just lay over. Like we we're trying to build our movement too, was really the hope behind what Freedom Revival was. And so in January, on January 8th, we got together somewhere between 12 and 15,000 people on the lawn of the County Board of Supervisors. We, we worshiped, we sang, we, um, we prayed, we had six pastors show up from each county, LA County, Riverside, all those counties. And really what we were attempting to do is, is speak life into to people to say, you're not alone and we have the ability, we have the knowledge, we have the capacity to do something great. Uh, we just have to unite and, 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 like, and do it, you know? Yeah, no, it looked like a great event. I wanted to be there. I kind of, um, at that point, was kind of finding out, you know, some of your work and what you guys have been up to. And um, hopefully there'll be another one. would love to, to come and, and check out the next one, um, whenever that might be. Uh, if this is a continuing series, that'd be awesome. Just bringing people together, you know, waking people up together, right? Yeah, dude, Greg, it's so hard where we were considering doing another one right about now. But it's strange because where you have um, concert series and people are touring again, it makes it makes us ask the question of 
what would be the significance? You know, if we have another gathering or if we have another call to action, there seems to be a dwindling of momentum in the movement where people are exhausted. People are, I mean, you're fighting the assembly bills, you're fighting the Senate bills, you're fighting, you know, just to ensure your kids don't have to wear masks at school. And then we're talking about, do they have to get inoculated? Man, all these issues are constantly bombarding those who just want to preserve liberty, that it makes us ask the question of, if we tried to do a large event, would there be that many people that are willing to go when they can go watch, you know, some mainstream artist and just check out? Yeah, and as we're recording this, Sean, I I mean, that's a great point that you make because we and a lot of our compatriots and our allies and our friends have been up in Sacramento every every time, you know, out on the assembly floor. Um, I've been following people. I've been talking to people who have been actually going up there and knocking on doors for legislators, and they've been staying totally involved with SB 866, which I think is awesome. SB 866 is a garbage bill. Even though it's been changed to uh, not 12 and up, now it's 15 and up. They can still co-oversee your child without your knowledge, without your consent as a parent. Uh, it's a garbage bill. It's, it's tyranny. It's not even soft tyranny. It's just kind of straight up tyranny. But here's where I am on that. With SB 866, let's say that we, you know, we the people, we the liberty warriors, the freedom fighters in California, let's say we get this thing defeated, that even 15 and up gets chucked and uh, the assembly, maybe they don't have the votes for it in the assembly. So then that's a great victory, right? That's a great victory for 2022. But what happens in January of 2023? Are they going to just come at us with more tyranny bills? with more garbage that gonna th- they're going to throw at us. The state owns our children. They control our children. They get us fired if we don't go along with their, you know, uh, injections in the arm or whatever medical treatment they want. I guess my question is, where do we go from here? Um, do we, what if we lose momentum, ironically, with a victory that we might have with SB 866? Kind of like you're talking about. We don't want the movement to fizzle. Mm-hmm. That's so good. Uh, This is, I think, the great paradox that we're running into is we have momentum, but then people are getting exhausted. Can can we sustain? Is it possible to sustain liberty? I'm actually reading a book right now um, as uh, a free people suicide by Oz Guinness. And he discusses liberty for a nation. And he says that once you get to the climax where you're you're in such wealth that you're susceptible to getting picked off. And I truly believe that we're in such decadence that as a society, we have really nothing to, to complain about anymore. Uh-oh. Oh. Oh, sweet. We, have, we have nothing really to complain about anymore. Sorry, I've got my, my canopy up for this nice little shade cover and the wind's blowing. But um, as a society, I don't think that, that we really have anything more to complain about anymore, like actually to complain about. Like our, our kids have the opportunities to get educated. We have the opportunities for, for a lav, lavish lifestyles. We running water, electricity, like there's nothing really to fight for. And now we see our society is gonna eat itself because we're no longer fighting for justice because we've established justice. And so you see these corrupt ideas entering in because they need something. We as humans need something to fight for. We need a villain. And so we're vilifying ourselves and we're attacking ourselves from the inside. And I'm nervous for the next few years because as we get exhausted, as, as you have patriots who are Christians and trusting God and recognize the value of the Constitution, we start to run out of the ability 
to continue fighting the fight, then what are we left with? You're going to have a number of people that are going to flee. You know, Tennessee sounds nice. Texas sounds nice. Idaho sounds nice. So what would California be left with? And and that's that's some terrifying thoughts in my, in my mind. And I don't I don't know, man. I, I don't know. Yeah, I've um, I've heard, you know, different people characterize what we're going through nationally um, as kind of the end of an empire. And I, I used to kind of bristle at that. I thought, oh, no, we're not an empire and, and this and that. But the more and more I see that we have these client states, whether it's Ukraine around the world, you know, we're funneling billions and billions of taxpayer dollars in order to control these governments, which are among the most corrupt in the world. If you look at Zelensky and, and the people that run that that kleptocracy. Um I look at that, you know, the end of an empire, that language, and I think, you know, it's it's scary. It's sad. Um, I don't want to say, oh, we're like the Weimar Republic and there could be this awful tyranny ahead of us because I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to resign myself to that. But right now, we don't have hyperinflation, but we have we have a debased currency, right? We're just printing money. We have extreme inflation. We have, I would characterize it as moral degeneracy, Um I would characterize it as, uh, as, you know, basically a retreat from objective truth, objective value. And we know that for republicanism, small r, not political party, but for small r republicanism to flourish, it flourishes with a moral, with a religious, or at least a virtuous, a virtuous people. What, what are your thoughts on that? You know, are, are we in the end of the empire? And what's, what's bringing that on? Greg, so well said. Yeah, I... Uh, you, you mentioned my series, We the People, and I'm, I'm frequently challenged with the people I run into, as well as pleasantly surprised. I went out and shot yesterday, and I was asking folks, what are the five rights in the First Amendment? And nobody really knew what they were until I ran to, into these uh, youngsters, um, I'd say college-aged at, at most, and I really didn't anticipate them to know anything, so I sarcastically, uh, sarcastically walked up to them and I said, hey, you guys look like some young people, I can only imagine your insight. And I asked them the question, and they spit off all five rights in the First Amendment without even batting an eye. And I was so impressed that I, I kind of, I was like thrown off. And her, their, their mother, two boys and a girl, were, were standing right behind me. She was taking photos, and she comes after me, and she says, like, so what would you think? And I said, oh, my mind is blown. Like, you've done such a great job raising up your children. And she says, well, I'm Mexican, and my husband is El Salvadorian, and we value the United States. And I believe that's what's happening is those who are coming here recognize what tyranny is. Like, those who have left these dictatorships or these these corrupt systems are entering in the United States and they're tasting liberty and they're tasting the greatness of the U.S. Constitution and those who are raised here are being brainwashed in these ideologies that say like the 1619 project that we've been pro-slavery from our inception which couldn't be further from the truth and all the documents are there you know like uh, Jefferson writing in the Declaration of Independence that he wanted to abolish the slave trade yet those were were redacted and it's like do we want to actually know the truth do we want to recognize the special thing that we have here in America and I say a select few do but I would say majority don't majority want to enjoy the decadence and and the wealth that our our country has produced therefore I have to assume 
that in a republic where it's dependent on the citizens to be activated and the citizens to preserve the structure that we have to collapse because there's nothing that's going to hold up that system which is dependent on citizens engagement. Yeah, so let me let me ask you there. Um, I know we've, we've spoken before a little bit about this briefly. I love Jefferson. It sounds like you're probably a big fan as well. I'm going to go out on a limb. Um, so some of the great thinkers and the great writers that influenced our founders such and revolutionaries such as, uh, such as Jefferson, they read people, even from France, believe it or not, like um, Charles de Montesquieu, for example. And what Montesquieu had, he wrote a lot about republicanism, again, small r, in republics. And one of the things that he does in his great book, uh, Spirit of the Laws, is he breaks down kind of three types of government, which is something that many thinkers had done, you know, going back to the time of Aristotle, of course. Montesquieu breaks it up into republicanism, monarchies, and then despotic. And it's amazing. You you go back and you look at some of the descriptions therein and some of his discussions, and it's like, oh my gosh, this is this is incredible. Some of the, the wisdom that comes out of it. So, for example, Republican forms of government he says they require virtue. For monarchical systems of government, they require honor. You know, um, so monarchies were not always have not always been seen as as a bad thing necessarily. Rulers maybe had a much lower time preference. They they cared more about the long run for their kingdom. Um, I know in in America our DNA is a little bit anti-monarchy, but they require honor. Despotic despotic regimes. This is, this is amazing, I think. I want to hear your thoughts on all this, and then I'll stop talking here. Despotic regimes require fear. So where are we at? Where are we at, Sean? What do you think about Montesquieu's description of those three types of government? Wow, that's so well said, Greg. Man, I really enjoyed that. You know, we have so much fear in our system right now that it, that it, it seems to, to lead straight into that despotic system. You know, I... I'm looking at, it's funny because I was, I was just, re, I'm reading to my kids uh, the feudal system. We're talking about the feudal system in England and the Magna Carta. And I'm, I'm drawn in and I'm, I'm looking at the monarchy and this idea where you had these individuals that were seeking uh, safety. And so they would sacrifice some of their rights to preserve their safety, right? Like they wanted long-term safety. So the monarch owned it all to guarantee security uh, through the feudal system. Yet the, the monarch would, would take advantage of, of the, the, their subjects frequently, you know, and which birthed the Magna Carta. But, you know, I believe that our lack of understanding of how a system operates here in the United States can only lead to to a man to a necessity where some some individual would be lording over us like like with with fear or i mean can can our society even demand respect anymore like what what even what would we desire or how would we define respect in our society for example like we can't define a man and a woman we can't define life and death we can't define when when birth um or when life begins is it birth or conception how could we possibly define what respect is? And I think that the only option would be to operate out of fear because people are just so led by their emotions. Yeah, and after what we just came through the past two years, two and a half years, and I, this, it made a huge impact on me, a big mark. But after the past two years, 
that spoke to me when I was rereading that passage on despotic regimes running on fear. I mean, look what we just went through. The media, basically, which is an arm of the state, yes. you know, right now we have this corporatist, yes. fascistic media that basically they're the Praetorian guards for the, the regime. The media ran almost 24 hour a day uh, with clickers, like numbers going up, death, death count, death count. Um, this is the percentage of positive tests. They kept people paralyzed with fear. Many loved ones, many friends, people that I know, when I was kind of trying to talk people down off the ledge and I was writing articles saying, no, 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 we got to we got to be data driven here. Don't freak out. The death rate is not three percent. People look at the denominator. It's all this stuff of 2020. But the media ran in almost an endless loop of the death count. You're going to die. You're going to die from this new coronavirus. And then it enabled, it went right into what we were called conspiracy theorists for saying, right? It went right into vaccine mandates. And we're going after your kids. Your kids must get the vaccine in many school districts. AB 1993, um, public and, and private employers were almost forced, you know, or they were going to force their employees to get a shot. I, I mean, to me, it just, it's so clear. The, the fear was used to totally change the system and to change it quickly um, and to give rise to a lot of this tyranny. Yeah, it's so well said. What do you think their strategy would be in, in in removing the constitutional protection that's established? I think I think if you have a crisis, you have any kind of emergency, that's when they move and they move quickly, right? The Constitution is great and the rule of law is great, right? Even up in Canada, same thing. They're kind of like America Junior. Everything is fine. We have a constitutional order, right? We've all got natural rights. Yeah, that's quaint. That's cute, right? Until... They need to shut it down. So I, I just mentioned Canada because I've talked to people about this before with the truckers. Oh, yeah, in Canada, you're a free people. No problem, eh? But then the second they start honking for a week straight, it's take away their Bitcoin, um, tap right into their bank accounts, shut them down. All of a sudden, Mr. Smiley-faced beta male um, Trudeau up there, he turns into Stalin. So I, the way I see it, it's like this ephemeral authoritarianism. What I mean by ephemeral is it's like a river that flows when it needs to or when it's raining. But then it dries up and there's no river or creek there. But when it rains, it pours. That's how I see it, Sean. It's, they let us have our constitutional rights and protections when it doesn't get involved with how mm. we're supposed to be controlled. But as soon as they need to, to suspend it, boom, they just they go full authoritarian. That's so good. I've, I've really been trying to figure out how, because the right and the left are both afraid, where you're seeing people on the left uh, doing the J6 committee and saying that we are, I've, I've spoken to people that say that, that conservatives are the ones that are responsible for making people un, uncomfortable with voting, like that we are investing in the uncertainty of the voting systems um, and to, to to prevent Democrats from voting somehow. Like the narrative is so slimy that somehow we are pinned for all things that, that these corporations and these leftists are doing. But regardless, to my point, you have the left that's afraid and then you have the right that's afraid. You have the left that's afraid thinking that the right's taking over. You have the right that's afraid of the left taking over and they're, but they're both fear. How do we get to a position where we can eradicate the fear and become active? And that's where I, I'm sitting in this position saying, I can't be afraid of this possibility that, um, that we, we're going to have like Biden turn into making some uh, like Stalin-esque statements from, from the podium, but believe that we the people still have authority 
as little as we might have, what can we do with it and how do we overcome that fear? Yeah, you know, I, it's a great question. I think the fear largely stems from this place of in the past 50 to 100 years, really, man, since the progressive era, we have turned this country from a federal republic of individual states that have really much a high degree of sovereignty. We turned it into this monolithic blob. We turned it into a national government. We don't have a federal government. It's a national government. And so people are terrified because we're seeing it right now, even with Roe v. Wade, the abortion debate, this whole thing. We have this winner-takes-all system where we think that it's a zero-sum game. And I don't mean we. I'm not part of that. But I think much of the country thinks these are the biggest stakes. We got to rush the Capitol. We got to go to D.C. because D.C. is everything. Well, D.C., for you and me, man, it's 3,000 miles away, right? D.C. shouldn't matter. The federal government can do, like, what, 18 things as listed in Article 1, Section 8, or whatever the the number is uh, of individual enumerated powers, right? Yeah. So who cares? D.C. shouldn't matter anymore. And I think there's this great degree of fear when people say, oh, yeah, my gosh, it's all there in D.C. But really, it should be in our state capitals. And it should be at our city council meetings, which is an awesome thing. I've seen some of your work even going to uh, San Diego County. Right on, man. I think that's the way to go. Make our voices heard. Don't be scared about D.C. Go to your city council meeting. Go to the dog catcher meetings if they have those. Go to the, the, uh, the board of supervisors. Make your voice heard there because they represent many fewer people. You know, now we have two senators for California. Of course, senators are supposed to re- they're supposed to represent states, not people. But we won't get into that. But even our representatives, man, they represent what three quarters of a million people. It's they're like celebrities. It's not representative government, right? So I just think a lot of the fear stems from this like winner takes all system that we've put ourselves into as part of the progressive era. Abortion's a great, great example of that. Whew, wow, that was so that was so well said. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm with you 100% that if we continue to focus on the federal government, it'll feel like it's, we're so out of touch and incapable of doing anything. And I believe that's a strategy where if they can continue to keep this, this federal things are happening and you don't have the ability to go Washington, to Washington, D.C. and do something about it, then all you can do is entertain yourself. And all you can do is check out completely and enjoy whatever capital you're capable of bringing in for yourself to enjoy your your I don't know your little castle that you can produce um, I think that's that's the heartbeat of what freedom revival is trying to do like we believe that we can take back San Diego County from the hands of tyrants like we we truly believe it and this election was uh, the primary man it was hard for us because we had a lot of momentum and it makes us wonder is is our belief tangible and how long will it take you know can will it take two years will it take five years you know, San Diego County is a conservative county. It has been for ages. Yet the media is able to, with their authority and with their power and their constant stream of information, to convince people that San Diego County is progressive and liberal like Los Angeles County or like the totality of California. I believe California is much more conservative than the media spins it to be. And I think Seattle, I think Washington and Oregon are much more conservative as well. I've spent enough time in those states to see all the the farmers that are up there and and recognize all the big trucks with the you know the don't tread on me flags that I really believe that all three states on this west coast are much more conservative but the thing is we're fighting against is the media and the media controls what we believe and I'm I'm always astonished 
when I ask somebody on the streets with the We The People series, I ask them, hey, where'd your ideas come from? And they're like, oh, I just, you know, I just feel that way. I, I, I just, that, that I just feels right. It's just something that I've looked up and it feels right. It's from research that I've done. But the ideas that they have are identical to the ideas in their to- the, the whole group think that they're experiencing. You know, like they, they, they differ so slightly, if not perfectly. Like for example, I was talking to a, a liberal woman. She had orange hair and she had a, a leather bracelet with the studs. And uh, I mean, typical what we would say back in like the 90s is goth. And I asked her, you know, what, like, what are your thoughts on what is a woman? And she, you know, parroted exactly what everybody says. And then I said, you know what, I'm going to just guess. I'm just going to guess what your beliefs are as the appropriate response for the government from the Uvalde shooting. I'm just going to guess. And so I just listed it off. 21 and over to buy a firearm, uh, ban assault rifles, whatever those are. And, and then you, you are adamantly against arming teachers in the schools. And Oh, and then universal background checks. And she was like, whoa. I think you should be 18. If you can go into the military, you should be 18. But that's all she had to say because it's exactly what she believed. The ideas are the same. <laughs> yes, and that's exactly right. People are parroting what they've, what they've heard. It's much easier to parrot something back, right, than to think. And I see that, honestly, with a lot of conservatives too. If you just sit around watching Fox News all day yes. long, man, Fox News, it's like controlled opposition. If anyone thinks that's a rightist network or a free market network, you got to be kidding me. I, I enjoy watching Tucker Carlson, but some of the other shows I watch it and I'm like, oh my God, this is like uh, warmed over regime propaganda, Just it, but packaged as, oh, they're radical, extreme right wingers. And it's like, oh my gosh, this is classic controlled opposition from what you hear on Fox News. Um, view it as entertainment, 100%. but yeah. Yeah, it's like, just stop parroting things back, guys. I mean, it, it actually takes work. It's painful to think. Um, I think we try to do it from time to time, but it, it actually is like, you know, it takes some effort, right, to come up with an original thought. <laughs> That's so good. Okay, Greg, I, on that note, since I brought up Uvalde, I was talking to a buddy of mine who is very progressive, and I was asking him, like, what do you think a good solution would be? And he's throwing off some ideas, and some of them were good, some of them were just terrible. But it was good for me to have a dialogue with somebody that I, I wholly disagreed with because I think that's where, and I trusted him, right? I disagree with him, but I trust him. So we're able to bounce ideas back and forth off each other. He gives me a bad idea and I said, dude, that, let's, let's walk through that idea. And, you know, let's say, for example, we should totally ban all assault rifles. Well, first I'd say, well, what is an assault rifle? And he would say, well, you know, semi-automatic. And I'm like, well, okay, so then... We're okay with lever action like where's the line, you know, and so once the terms are defined Then we can get kind of play that game of critical thinking which our society for some reason really sucks at playing But I'm able to learn from him. So he had an idea of what if when you buy a rifle There's a training you have to go through like a really simple um, Like a I don't know a four-hour course training where maybe you, you're a, a first-time gun owner and you just have to ensure that you're, you're competent with it. And I was like, dude, you know, I'm kind of okay with this idea because our society with our typical 18-year-olds, they're still living at home. They plan on living there for another 10 years. They are incapable of carrying responsibility, most 18-year-olds, and we want them to be the ones that are capable of, 
of holding a firearm. You know, I'm for education. I want people to be empowered. And could this turn into an opportunity to empower that 18-year-old to to confirm their 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 capacity for for bearing an um, arms? And I'm like, it's an interesting idea. You know, it's it's just interesting. And I'm okay with playing with ideas and being wrong. You know, let's let's throw ideas around and we'll find solutions. But this idea of operating out of fear that that the left is all going to just kill us all and the and the right's going to kill us all is only going to extrapolate the issue. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, I think with with these hot button issues like the tragedy, the absolute horror that we saw in Uvalde, it's everyone's oh. worst nightmare, right? Um, yeah. What uh, twenty one little kids? I'm sorry, twenty twenty one kids killed, two innocent teachers. It's every it's every person of goodwill. It's all of our worst nightmare. And if I can't get that level of grace and respect from uh, someone who disagrees with me, maybe on gun control, if they can't say. Look, I know maybe you're coming from a, a much different perspective than I am, but we can all agree that we don't want 20 dead children ever, right? If they can't give me that grace of acknowledging that, of course, 99.999% of us want children protected, then that's some person right off the bat where it's like, I'm not having a conversation with that person. Um, and some people, that's how extreme some people have gotten, man. Um, I'm not going to engage with that person if they can't say, Look, I know you have more of a liberty mindset and you are maybe more worried about the abuses of the government coming down when the government gives us pieces of paper that say we can own the weapons, then they can control everything. They can license the media. They can license free speech. They can license marriages, which I'm against too. Um, I'm against pretty any, pretty much any kind of license because that's just essentially extortion or a protection racket um, that you would see from the mob. But that's maybe me. I know I'm maybe in a minority on that, even medical licensing uh, from what we've seen the past two years. But um, I, I think the key is all of us want children protected, like you were saying, Sean, and like I was just saying. But then if we look at the reasons why, you know, or some of the some of these proposals that are put out there, common sense gun reform, you know, or like ban AR-15s, like you're saying, well, first and foremost, you can't ban it if you don't even know what it is. You don't even know what I went through to buy my AR, which I might or might not own. But people in California that have to buy an AR-15, it's already modified. They used to have a, a bullet button, right? Now you, the, the grip is different. You know, it's not like a traditional, yes. you can still have a pistol yes. grip, but it's got to have other features removed. You have to fill out mounds of paperwork. You have to wait two weeks. You have to uh, like pass a test, essentially. Yes. And I, yes. I was in gun stores. I've been waiting there for four hours. So I just think people don't know this stuff and they throw out these platitudes instead of thinking they just repeat what they've heard on CNN or on Fox News. And then that's that substitutes for thinking. That's exactly right. Yeah, where I, I, I went and I got a buddy who owns a gun, a gun store locally. So I just went and visited him and I was talking to him, asking him some questions. And in that moment, I realized, you know, I should do an episode of We the People at, at a gun store because I think there is such a disconnect from reality and, and most of us who, who are desiring an understanding will we'll investigate, you know, we'll go through the process of buying a firearm, not necessarily because we, we want to learn, but we want to be a, we want to be a part of the process. We want to, we want to engage in the system. And there's some people that, that don't seek to engage in the system. Like they, it's almost like they, they want to, I don't know, man, it's, this consumerism's taking over. I don't know if it's entertainment's taking over. It's hard for me to understand, honestly, like the, the lack of, of, 
of recognizing the position that we're in as a society and why so few people are willing to engage. I don't understand it. I, I truly don't. We live in a very, very um, profligate and well-to-do society. And I think a lot of us, and I say us as Americans, right? But a lot of us have, have put things on autopilot, have outsourced our self-protection and our protection of our families. Uh, we've put that out of, out of our hand. Really, we're supposed to be the first responders. That's the whole thing. We're supposed to protect our family, our property uh, in a lawful, peaceful way. But, you know, everyone just kind of says, oh, someone else will take care of it. It will be the local police department or I'll call the sheriff or, you know, I'll, I'll outsource uh, education to the state, you know, to government schools or whatever it is. We've outsourced everything. And you mentioned, I think, consumerism or buying products. It kind of goes along with that mindset, man, where it's like, you know, we're not doing a whole lot of stuff on our own. We're not even like reading what we should read to know where our rights come from and where they don't come from. But then we're also outsourcing the education and the indoctrination of our children because it's free and we need a babysitter. And we're outsourcing the protection of ourselves. Um, first responders, which, you know, even a great first responder can be five, seven minutes away at best, right? If, God forbid if there's a problem, an intruder in your home. I think we've just, we live in this um, rich society where we've gotten soft, man. You know, what is it? Um, good times make weak men and women. Uh, and here we are. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm optimistic slightly in this idea that if we live, if we can, in, if we can turn the ship around or if we can direct, redirect the course, that we will experience a greatness in, in America that, that will rival like the American Revolution in this, like this beautiful understanding of what liberty means. But it's, it's hard to imagine, man, because I think the American Revolution, they really loved liberty. They really loved it. You know, they, they didn't want to go into the American Revolution. They didn't desire to fight England. Like they wanted to preserve their liberty and figure out a way to restore their relationship with England. But just kind of, you know, I don't want the sugar tax. I, I don't want you quartering your troops in my home. Like I, if we could just figure that out, let's, let's restore the relationship because this is good. You know, they, they left England you know, in the in early 1600s, they were on their own for a hundred years. And then they restored that relationship, or I guess less than that. Uh, they were on their own for like 50 years and restored their relationship with England. And they wanted to keep it because it was beautiful. But the one thing they weren't willing to sacrifice was liberty. They loved liberty. And I just don't think people even know what it means to love liberty in America. I, I'm starting to, to truly value it where I'm putting myself in these positions of discomfort because I love it so much. So I go talk to people in the streets. I do not like talking to people in the streets, man. I would rather be at home reading a book on like my computer, researching stuff. I would love doing that. But I'm putting myself out there because I love liberty so much that I want people to engage and hear ideas and maybe they'll fall in love with liberty too. Like, you know, uh, like those individuals in the American Revolution. Yeah, it, it, to me, it seems like um, we've lost touch with liberty, but we're very in touch with libertinism, aren't we? So if people say, oh, America, it's this libertarian society. I wish. Right now, what substitutes for ordered liberty, what substitutes for it is do whatever you want. Follow whatever base impulse you want. Do it in the streets. 
have drag queen story hour right in front of children. That's my liberty. Don't get in the way with anything I want to do to satisfy my base urges. That is not, that's not liberty. Now, I'm not saying everything should be criminalized. I'm very much, I don't want criminalization. I don't want that. But even if we decriminalize everything, even if we lived in some magical minarchist, you know, small government utopia state, that's not going to make a healthy society. So this is where I've kind of struggled. I, I you know, I've, I've worked through the stages of libertarianism myself, and I, I still kind of ascribe, you know, I still call myself a libertarian, but I'm very much, that's not enough. That's not enough of a worldview. You have to have a community. You have to have either a church, or if, or if you're not religious, I'm not saying people have to believe, but if it's not a church, you have to have neighbors. You have to have a community group, a civil society. Um, de Tocqueville wrote about this, you know, in the 1830s, right? Uh, democracy in America. That's what made our country great. It isn't just top-down government from 3,000 miles away. Um, it, that's not going to lead to liberty. And libertinism, just doing whatever you want, we've seen over the past few years, that doesn't make anyone happy. Do those people screaming in front of the Supreme Court, you know, all these obscene things and, you know, who they want to do this to and all that, do they seem happy? Do they seem well-balanced? Rhetorical question, right? Yeah, so well said. I, I ran into a guy last week at the, there was a, a pride, gay pride festival in North County here in San Diego, and uh, he's a depressing looking dude, six five, six six, like towering above me. He's got makeup on uh, and a wig. And I asked him, you know, what do you think about uh, like transitions? Um, what did I say? He's like, I said, what do you think about the suicide rate that happens after people transition? And he said, oh man, after so many transitions, they experience the most amount of, of joy because they're finally living out their best, them best, their best selves. And I looked at him and I said, well, are you joyful? And he, you know, he's got this like almost the clown face, you know, where like the sad clown, like the frown painted on his face. Almost, it's like what I feel, like the sense from the guy. And he said, oh, well, I used to be joyful. Like this idea that if you can do whatever you want, then inevitably you will have joy because of it. It just leads to calamity. There has to be definition. There has to be boundaries in a society. We need to know the difference between right and wrong. There has to be a framework at which we can operate because that's just who we are as human beings. And, and I believe that, um, that the, many of the founders were Christians, not all of them, but many of them. And those who weren't recognized that the document that was being created and this idea that we can have rights above government was a good idea and they would respect it. It was this understanding that I don't personally think that, like through my observations of the world and the, the studies that I've done, I don't think that there's a God that exists. I would consider myself an atheist. But I love the idea that government, who was made by man, could likely corrupt and we're going to have rights above that government. I like that idea. And I think we should all come to agreement. Yet for some reason, people are so um, indoctrinated with the hatred toward God that they can't even see the value in what the Constitution pr produced. Yeah, and it's, it is like an antipathy toward God. Um, and and you, I think you ask maybe a lot of these people, and you've probably done a lot more outreach and talking to, um, to folks like this than I have. You ask them, where do your rights come from then? And it's, I know it sounds like a hackneyed question maybe to people like you and me and who have these discussions, but you've got to ask people, where do your rights come from? Because that's fundamental to who we are as Americans and who we are as Californians and, and citizens of our local polity, right? It's, it's a fundamental question. 
And if your rights, if your rights come from God, or at least for, for non-believers, um, and there are some great liberty lovers who are maybe non-believers or agnostics, but at least I think they recognize or acknowledge that our rights are inherent. You know, they're intrinsic. We are born with them. No one gives us a right. You don't, no one gives you the right to self-defense. You're just born with that. It's almost axiomatic, right? No one gives you the right to go pursue shelter or to pursue healthy living or health care. We have the right to pursue. We don't have the right to a guarantee of a meal or the guarantee of clothing or the guarantee of health care because that entails that there's got to be someone at the other end of the line giving it to me, right? But we certainly are born with these rights, which are kind of axiomatic. You know, you're you're born with the ability to to eat and pursue shelter and safety and whatnot. And I think it's a fundamental question. Mm-hmm. But why why do you think? Well, I know the answer to it, and I think that it's, it's such a basic question. But why why do you think that it's so easy for people that are um, progressive or leftists to detest these ideas of liberty? I think it really comes down to a basic uh, divide between, you know, kind of the right and the left. And, and I really do believe that some people legitimately believe that there are natural hierarchies. There is a natural order to things in, in the universe um, for humanity. And I think that on the other side, maybe on the left, there is this belief that um, equality is the highest ideal. And so once, once you make equality, and I don't mean, I'm not saying arguing against Certainly um, not arguing against equality under the law. That's not w- what we mean by this, but it's more on the left. They think that equality as an end result is is extremely important. Um, and once once that becomes your premise, I think anything else can kind of be justified to get everyone back to this level, to this equality of outcome. Of course, 99.9% of us, I think, would believe, certainly, hopefully, in equality under the law. We're going to have these laws in this giant government? Well, man, it better treat us all equally, right? But what I'm talking about with equality, maybe on the left, is more of equality of outcome and ensuring that. And once you do that, like I say, I think then you can kind of bend other things, you know, to ensure that you have that outcome. Sure, yeah, you can start plundering from this group to give to that group to ensure that there's a, a balance between, between the two. Yep. I love that term plunder. It reminds me of Bastiat and the law. He talks about plunder, right? You can do it. It's like misplaced philanthropy, right? Um, plunder can be due to, pure, due to pure greed or it can be due to, uh, to the pursuit of power or whatnot. God forbid when the masses begin plundering from others. Let me ask about a two-state solution, you know, in, in quotes. And I don't mean Israel, Palestine, or any of that. What I mean here is in California... You kind of alluded to it earlier. I wanted to jump in, but I didn't want to interrupt you. Um, In California and in eastern Oregon, there's not only the greater Idaho movement, where they're trying to basically just move the boundary of Idaho into eastern Oregon, which is uh, very conservative, has a lot of libertarian-leaning districts as well. Um, It's really just mostly Portland and Salem, as I understand it, that are more left-leaning. But this movement is kind of going on in other states, you know, greater Idaho. And here, closer to home albeit way up north, the state of Jefferson movement. Um, one of the things I want to explore with this you know, project that I'm starting, the California Liberty Project, is local control, decentralized political power. Um, would you, down the road, support 
splitting California into two states, if we can make that work? Well, you know, it's in the Constitution that uh, there are frameworks for doing so. Therefore, I think uh, I'm open to it, man. I, I'm open to the idea of secession. Like the United States gives root for these states if they feel the need to secede. Uh, that they have the authority to do so. I believe local control is is paramount in a constitutional republic that we established, like we were discussing this idea of county, county, um, the the city, the dog catcher, that we know what's best in our neighborhoods, and if we continue to leave it to some like the totality of the state or the federal government, it's going to get really nasty really soon. Um, and I, dude, I've got a fear. I've got a fear that. The federal government is so close to the corporations that really we're going to be uh, like drinking um, Coca-Cola through IVs, IVs real soon. And I'm not in favor of those ideas. Therefore, dude, if, they, if the state of Jefferson really creates that momentum that's necessary for Idaho, um, Oregon, and Northern California to merge into their own state, dude, I'm in favor of it. And realistically, if they did it, dude, I would probably move there. Because I, I love this idea of a state that's based on liberty. And um, we need more of it. We need more, more people getting involved. And I was going to say patriots, more patriots. But really, we need more Americans. I think the word patriot is, is almost turning into this right-leaning thing. But we just need more people who care about understanding history, what the U.S. Constitution means, what our responsibility is as an American, what we can do, that we have the authority to go into the city council and call out the city council members on, on, onto the carpet and say what you're doing is not something I value. I'm going to start a recall for you or I'm going to, you know, hold, hold them accountable. That we need politicians to be a little more nervous again and we need Americans to be a little to choose to be uncomfortable and get engaged. What are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on the state of Jefferson? I fully support it. I honestly do. And I think it needs we're in the pamphleteering phase right now. I want to bring it into the conversation, but not in some nutty like split California up into six parts. Remember that or split California into three parts. I think it's it's really doable if if we basically just say, you know, San Diego, Orange County, you know, Kern County and the Mountain Counties, the San Joaquin Valley on up. Basically, it's mostly an east-west divide in this state culturally. And I think um, doing this defensively, because this is the way it's been done in the past. Um, if, if D.C., if they keep going with that, with making Washington, D.C. a state of like, what, 800,000 people or something. So they get two senators. Yeah, nice, nice. Nice trick there. Um, but anyway, if they push that forward, making D.C. a state, then what needs to, to get into the conversation is then to balance it out, we need to have a state here, whether it's greater Idaho or I prefer the state of Jefferson. But I'm fully in support of that. I, I think carving out a state that's basically the entire eastern portion of California, hopefully with Orange County and San Diego, you know, if they locally uh, decide to go along with us, I would absolutely support it. And then further, some of the ideas that I'm trying to develop are breaking up that state into self-governing autonomous regions or almost like cantons in the Swiss model, where it's like we just have a shell of a state where we live in peace and harmony with one another. But the different regions might have some different needs or whatever. And so the different regions would govern themselves. I want to explore those ideas. Again, we're just kind of in the pamphleteering phase right now, right, Sean? But... I'm totally into it. I think this is the way. Local control. Local control. 
Come on. That's the beautiful thing about the United States. And uh, it's, it's unfortunate how few people recognize that the, the way that the country was established for local, local control is a benefit for all of us. As California becomes crazier and crazier, we have the ability to do something, you know? Do we want to change the government which we live in or do we want to move, you know? Do I want to go to Idaho? Do I want to go to Tennessee? There are these other states that have a structure that I more value, so I could easily jump into those. Or, or do we, you know, like want to change it up? And I'm, I'm a big fan. I, I think it's great. I think we need to challenge the systems more. I, I would love to see, um, I would love to see people start running for office more frequently. Like, let's say that it takes 10 years for the state of Jefferson. What if in the next 10 years, we, we as conservatives decide like, we're no longer just going to observe the game. We're going to get into the game. We're going to run for city council. We're going to run for mayor. We're going to run for board of supervisors. We're going to run for uh, assembly, state Senate. Like these are all positions that we're going to fill which is what we saw in the primary, but unfortunately there wasn't enough momentum from the conservative base to vote them in, which is ironic because you had people step in, but it's the beginning. It's the beginning of a movement. Absolutely. It's the beginning, and I, I hope we can um, continue having great advocates and communicators like you on our side to kind of give rise to these ideas and start putting out the, quote, pamphlets, you know, the 21st century pamphlets, but, you know, Thomas Paine did it. Um, going back to our wonderful, awesome, revolutionary times, they didn't just give birth to it at Lexington and Concord, and we're not advocating we're not advocating violence or shooting, obviously, but we mean metaphorically giving birth to a revolution in thought. Right? They started in the 1760s. You mentioned earlier the Stamp Act and Townsend Acts and whatnot. Yeah, precisely. And th they were also at a place where you know they were in what is it, Jonas Clark's house? Was it? Uh... Yeah, they were in Jonas Clark's at Lexington and Concord when that all began. And the pastor, and this is why I believe there's a significance, and I'm a Christian, and I believe that there's a necessity for understanding a framework, because they were in the pastor's house, and the pastor was helping the community define what is the line. Like, what's the line in the sand? What, what is our framework? And without understanding what the line in the sand is, you'll just get pushed around to and fro. And that's my... my uh, Fear, not fear, fear is a bad word for it, but I feel bad for those that are on the left and progressive left, those that have bought into the ideologies of these woke, woke progressivisms because they, they, know, they will know no boundaries. They will do and be anything that their organization and their movement tells them because that movement is built on this idea that equality at all costs, well, that means eventually you're going to be at the bottom of the totem pole and they're going to be coming for you. It's just a matter of time. And, and I believe that what Jonas Clark was doing with, uh, was it Sam Adams and John Hancock, um, when the, the Redcoats were coming for him, is this idea yeah. that there's a line, guys. When they cross this line, then we have to respond. We have to know how to respond. Yeah. And, and of course, we hope it's all done. You know, we want it to be peaceful. We just want to redress government, you know, with, with some of our grievances. Um, but it's really cool, actually, you mentioned that house out there in Lexington. I was able to go there um, a few years ago with, with my kids, my wife and kids on vacation. And that was so awesome. Um, just as an aside, going through like Lexington, we went to Concord Bridge, which actually Ralph Waldo Emerson, um, famous transcendentalist author, he, he lived right, right next door to it, which was really cool. But it was amazing retracing the steps. And you think back on, these are real people. And they were really here engaging in a battle. I mean, 
it, it all becomes real when you see how small or how big it is, the dimensions, and you're actually there. And we went and saw the old North Church in Boston, and it was great. I mean, you, you got to, like, think about Bunker Hill and Breed's Hill, you know, and then all the, the sites, you know, Paul Revere's house. It was really neat. Yeah, that's so awesome. Yeah, I, I think we need more of that. We need more of engaging with history. Our, our kids, I mean, I've got three kids, and we try to talk, like I was telling you earlier, we try to talk about history with them. We try to help them understand, like, they are a part of what history will say in the future. So let's make sure we're preparing our minds and our, our, our spirits for what's to come because we want history to speak well of us. Awesome. Well, Sean, we're about at, uh, about at our time, around an hour or so here. Um, before we go, just um, tell everyone where they, and I'm sure everyone's familiar with your work. You've got a great following and do great work. But um, if there are a few people in the audience here in this podcast that are not familiar with what you do, um, point everyone in the direction of where they can follow Freedom Revival events, or is it We the People? I, I connected with you on Instagram. Share, share all your stuff with us, man. Well, thanks again for having me on. Um, for those of you that would like to follow me anymore, you can uh, follow us at Freedom Revival Events on Instagram. We're also on YouTube where we put up some of our content there. Uh, if you'd like to follow my We the People series, that's on Instagram and YouTube as well. My name is Sean Fredrickson. Just throw that in the search and you'll find me. Um, really, my objective is to challenge people to think more critically and take responsibility back for uh, what it means to be an American and recognize that it's through the people. We the people carry the responsibility and, and holding government in check. And I think that if more of us recognize that role, we can, we can restore this country. Awesome. Thank you very much, Sean. Really appreciate your time today on this uh, this beautiful Friday. Looks like you're someplace nice outdoors there with some oak trees behind you. Um, have a great day, and I really appreciate you coming on California Liberty Project. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks, man. This has been the California Liberty Project Podcast. Make sure to subscribe, share it with others, and follow us on Instagram and Twitter.